the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Lisa's story is an accredited communications professional and badass epee fencer. She spent much of the last seven years researching and writing about Walt Recca after he handed her a written confession explaining how he hijacked Flight 305. But most importantly, he told her he committed the skyjacking because he believed he was better off dead than poor. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Lisa Story. Lisa, how was CooperCon? It was really interesting, a lot of fun. I met great people, learned a little bit more, found more details that I think support our story that Walt Rika, Walt Rucka is D.B. Cooper. But I also found the people involved, the fans, the people who are behind the story to be very enthusiastic, but also open to different ideas. I had one gentleman sit next to me one night and talk about, um, well, maybe this happened because he liked my uncle's story, but he also had a problem with it. So he was trying to help me come up with an alternate reason that, you know, this fact doesn't quite match up with some of the details. So I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed meeting people. I met a couple from New Jersey who just flew all the way across the country for this as a nice break. And uh, they were wonderful. They were a lot of fun to talk to. And then I met, surprise, I met a very nice couple from Wyoming and they threw a bombshell at me the last day and told me that they, um, the woman told me she had used a false name and that she was actually um, McCoy's daughter. So uh, we had an inter I, I found her to be just such a really lovely person and interesting person. And her story, while she does believe her father was Cooper herself, and he was the gentleman that did uh, like a copycat hijacking six months later or five months later and was captured and killed by the FBI. Um, she just has such, tra you know, there's a lot of tragedy around her story and then what she had to deal with growing up. And so I think from a fan perspective, sometimes people forget that there were victims in this crime. And I talk about my uncle because I'm really, ex you know, his story is so interesting and I know him in a different way than obviously the three, you know, flight 305 crew knows him. So one of my favorite parts of CooperCon is you were on the suspect panel, uh, hilariously see seated right next to Marla. So it was these two blonde gals who both claimed D.B. Cooper was their uncle. But yes. on that panel, you had a brilliant answer when I asked the question to everyone. 
what would you do if the case gets solved tomorrow and it's not your guy? And you immediately said, I'd be pissed. (laughs) Yes. And a lot of people came up to me afterwards and really appreciated that. And I think um, the reason I said that is my uncle's story is so interesting. And, and, you know, McCoy's daughter and I talked about this as well. All of the major suspects in and of themselves are very interesting human beings. I could have really pursued as obviously I've written, I've been spending the last seven or eight years writing a book about him. And I'm close, to, close to releasing it. Um, it'll be self-published. I don't doubt anybody, but my family will read it, but. Oh, I'll read it. Um, oh, good. Well, I'll send you a signed copy. Um, I could have really focused more on his Middle East years and his mercenary work than the whole hijacking. I've spent so much time focusing on that aspect of his life and tying the story together that it, you know, I, I don't think I would have finished the story. Um, and maybe that's part of what it is too. Maybe if I didn't think he was Cooper, I would have thrown all his papers away. I would have never looked at some of his letters, some of, some of his passports and IDs and found out that he was in the U.S. Foreign Service a couple times. And I, I think maybe this forced me to do his story, which is interesting in and of itself, whether or not you think he's Cooper or not. All right. Let's start from the beginning here. Okay. When was the first time you heard the words D.B. Cooper? So the first time I heard of D.B. Cooper was sometime along, you know, my adulthood. I'd heard about it. I did not. I was not a big fan of the story or that much interesting. I never paid attention to different suspects. But the first time I really started to look into it was my uncle's best friend, Carl Lauren, had been writing a book about my uncle because he had such an interesting life in his Middle East years. And he had also spent some time off and on in Sierra Leone, mining for diamonds and trying to sneak them out dressed as a Catholic priest. So Carl was writing a book And as Carl will tell you, and his wife will tell you, um, they both knew Walt was D.B. Cooper the night of the hijacking. So when Carl started meeting back up with my uncle in the year 2000, he and his Michigan parachute team buddies started meeting up. Carl started to try to get him to talk about it. In the meantime, a couple years later, my uncle got really sick and nearly died. And Carl could tell on the phone he was ill. So Carl flew across the country, went to my uncle's house, found him collapsed on the floor, called 911, got him to the hospital. And then Carl, that's the first time I spoke to Carl. And he started sending me drafts of his book about the, my uncle. And he asked me to stay in contact and keep him up to date about his health. And about what and- year is this? This was early 2000s, but in around 2005, I think it was 2005, is the first time I start saving letters because Carl sent me a letter saying the book has taken a new direction. And I think that was around the time that he started recording my uncle's confession and finally got my uncle to say, yes, I did this, right? It was maybe a couple years before that, but then So Carl and I started talking about it and he started sharing information with me, but in my visits to my uncle, he would not admit it. Um, He wouldn't deny it, but he wouldn't admit it. He would give me different short responses when I'd ask him specific questions. And then the first time my uncle indicated to me, he might possibly be 
Cooper was in 2011. He sent me a copy of an article with some comments on it. And and what did you think of that? That first, hey, by the way, I may or may not be D.B. Cooper. What was your reaction to that? It was nice that he finally admitted it because by then Carl had been talking to me and and asking me for other information or sending me letters about the story for six years. So it was, I felt like my uncle finally trusted me. And um, there, there's a side note that's kind of unrelated. There was a point in around 2011, 2012, my mom and I were visiting and I was in his kitchen and he had a bunch of friends over and one of his friends I had never met in person before, but had heard about. And this person was talking about some illegal activities, unrelated, you know, just something he had done uh, years before. And he turned and he saw me and he gave me a look like, I'm going to kill you because if you talk type of thing. And my uncle just looked at him and, and like gave him a nod of his head, like it's okay. And so then they continued the story. They didn't wait till I left the room. And I felt like at that point I had earned some trust. What was your thoughts of Walt growing up? Did you know he was this mischievous character that he was outlandish? What was your impression of him growing up? So I looked back to my teenage diaries to see when I referenced him. And there's one where I say, um, you know, my, my uncle's really interesting. He's a really bad speller, but we've been writing to each other and he, I can't wait to meet him because I don't remember him from when I was a little kid, much of my very young time, you know, years, I was either too young to remember him or he was overseas in the middle East. So when he started writing, Um, He would tell me about his exploits in the Middle East. And I just thought he was very adventurous and very interesting. He spoke several languages, uh, Russian, Polish, Indonesian. Uh, Wherever he would go and work, he would learn the language. So I also thought he was very wealthy um, because he had started making a lot of money and he had done some investments and things like that. So... I just thought he was an interesting guy. And then as I got older and learned more and more about the work that he did overseas, you know, I just thought that he was a fascinating person. I honestly didn't know that he was a mercenary to really near the end of his life. He obviously cared a lot about you. You were generous to enough to send me some letters that he wrote. And even his sign off and everything is so sweet. Oh, Lisa, I love you. Your uncle Walt. <laughs> um, I have a few nieces. I've never written a letter. <laughs> With his own children, he had been absent and he was not a good father. If you talk to his children who are close to my age, a little bit younger, a little bit older, they will have a whole different story about him because he was absent or when he was around, he was in his angry, violent stage, right? But I'm a niece. I have different expectations from him. I would see him once a year. Um, when I was adult and then keep in contact via letters or on telephone calls, I have different expectations. He was really proud of me and my parenting with my daughters. I was a single parent. We didn't agree on politics and we have some hilarious letters where we jab back and forth at each other over politics and we drew each other pictures and crazy things like that. 
But um, yeah, he was very considerate. And you should see the letters he wrote my daughter, Sydney, when she was in middle school, she was having troubles with her friends. And they go back and forth in a series of about 12 letters, where, you know, he just makes fun of her, and she makes fun of him. And he sent her uh, a glass slipper and told her she's a princess and that type of thing. And then if I didn't write back, he would send a letter to my dog. And he would, he would tell her, you know, he called her pause of fury and he'd tell her it must be horrible living with those people. And, you know, he'd make fun of my mom and I and our politics and stuff like that. So he had a good sense of humor. Yeah. One of the letters you sent me, it was like, oh yeah, I was waiting in line next to these two young guys in blue jeans with holes in them and long hair. They must've been Democrats. (laughs) Yes. So he, you know, he had been a union guy and a lifelong Democrat, but later in life, he became a Republican. He actually ran for public office in the small town he was in as a Democrat, even after he had kind of changed. So yeah, he would make fun of me and my mom being, being Democrats and call us, you know, crazy liberals. And I would tease him back for his, you know, his politics. So he hadn't heard he ran for office. What position It was like town supervisor. They live in a town. He lived near the end of his life in a little town called Escoda. It has less than a thousand people in it. And their entire town board was like kicked out of office and replaced. So he ran for office, but he did not get elected. And he ran as a Democrat, which I don't understand because by that time he was not any longer. So when back to uh, Carl Lauren and when this all gets started. So Carl is the first to sort of mention to you, I think he's Cooper. Yes. And what was your thought when Carl said that to you? I talked to my mom about it because my mom knows Walt really well. They're brother and sister, right? They grew up um, on the streets of Detroit. Uh, Their dad died when they were really young and their mom had to work even out of town and left them home alone for days on end. And they lived in what's called the Cass Corridor. My mom said there was a park there that you had to run through as fast as you can so you didn't get shanked, you know? And she remembers sitting on, you know, looking out her window or running up to her apartment through the back stairs, trying not to, you know, to avoid the junkies and the knife fights. And you're talking 1930s, 1940s, right? So um, I asked my mom and she said, yeah, absolutely, it could be, but neither of us were truly convinced. It took a while to put the story together. And then recently, mom and I have been going through the, uh, like Tina Mucklow's interview and Florin Schaffner's interviews, the two flight attendants who spent the most time with D.B. Cooper. And there are certain phrases that they repeat that sound very much like my uncle. In fact, my mom was saying, oh yeah, that's Walt, (laughs) you know, the something along the line of Florence Schaffner says something like, I don't believe that, you know, are you serious? Or I don't believe you're hijacking this plane. And he's like, I don't believe it either, but I am something along that line. So my mom's like, yeah, that's Walt. So I think we just saw a lot of similarities in his character. I think for me, the first time that I really thought it could possibly be him was when I found out that D.B. Cooper handed Tina Mucklow some money, that when she saw him counting the money, she was trying to keep things light. And so she said, 
and this is in the FBI interview, right? Um, she said, well, that's a lot of money. Would you mind sharing it? And she was kind of joking. And he, without skipping a beat, picked up a packet of money and said, sure, here. And then she's like, oh, wait, no, we can't accept gratuities. And he said, oh, okay, well, just as nonchalance with that, but also because Walt had robbed a Bob's big boy in 1965. And he had flirted with the female manager and handed her some money as soon as she handed it, you know, gave him the money. He immediately handed her some money and said, this is for being nice to me. Don't worry, the insurance company will pay for it. He said she stuck it in her brassiere. And then he felt bad for the few patrons that were still there. So he handed them $100. He walked out of the restaurant and the police were giving him a ticket because he happened to be parked the wrong way on a one-way street. And he walked right into the police. Um, he threw, he had taken in a plastic briefcase and a Tommy gun and he threw them against the fence, hoping they wouldn't see it, but he matched the, uh, the description. So they arrested him on the spot. And actually that's what he told me when we talked, when he finally gave me the full confession in 2013, the written confession, and we talked about it. Um, I said, so everything in here is true. And he said, yes. And I said, what Carl's been telling me is true. He said, yes. I said, wow, you're really infamous. And he said, you got away with a, with an amazing crime. And he said, I didn't get a, he got very angry. And he said, I didn't get away with anything. And when I asked him why, that's when he said better off dead than poor. And he said, it led him down. The Bob's big boy robbery was kind of the start of what led him down this path where he had difficulty getting work that led to one mishap after another. And, um, and that's what led to the hijacking because he was so destitute at that point. He was just like, I just as well use my skills. And at, you know, there were 250 hijackings in the US alone up to that point. I don't think people realize that in like a five-year span. We only hear about this particular hijacking, I think. So, he had heard about other hijackings and just figured he would just jump out of the plane and not let it land and then have the FBI arrest him when it landed. We, we were going back and forth a little bit before during doing the show. And in one of your emails to me, you said, hey, this Bob's big boy story, I think it's important to the character of, you know, not only Walt, but D.B. Cooper. Um, and many disagree with me. And I think that is really important because it says not only the type of guy who he was, but there's a history of this exact behavior. Correct. How many bank robbers on their way out give out stacks of cash? Right. Um, he risked his life for this 200000 and each packet is at least $2,000. So to give away 1% of his ransom, I think that's a big deal. He didn't just pull 320s out of a packet. Right. It says he tried to give her a handful of cash. You know, and, and talking about the character aspects and, and people obviously have to trust me or read, although they could listen to, um, you know, some of the recordings. But one of the other things is I have writings and I, and I can send those to you to show you where he talks about being polite. He always told me you should always try being polite first. And this is from a man who um, sprayed a woman's car with bullets after she wouldn't move her car. He asked plate very, you know, several times and she wouldn't do it. So then he took action, but 
he always tried to be polite first and he was often very deferential to women. He was a very different person with men than he was with women. And all the flight attendants, all three um, said that he was very polite. He was very deferential to them. Florence Schaffner said he tried to tip all three of the women. And I think that was related to you guys have been very nice here. She had given him change for a 20 for the drink that he ordered. And he tried to use that to tip them. And then of course, when Tina uh, was making jokes, he handed her a pack of $2,000. Like you said, that's a lot of money to, you know, you're risking your life. He, you don't know if you're going to, the FBI is going to storm the plane at any moment and you're handing back money. So I think that character trait, the politeness, um, and just also he, you know, he certainly had all the skill sets having been in special forces, you know, search and rescue, all of that type of thing. One of the things I think is really interesting about the whole Walt Recca thing is that you guys had all this information and then per his request sat on it and waited for yes. him to die before any of this would come out. Yes. So Carl was insistent. And in fact, when Walt gave me like this, I have like a movie playing in my head because I don't know if I made a mistake or not. But in August 2013, my mom and I were trying to get Walt into like hospice care because he was very, very ill. He died about six months later. He didn't want to leave his dogs, Dr. Pepper and Mr. Squirt. So we were trying to find somebody to take his unruly dogs and get him to go into hospice. And I was packing up all of his files, which I now have, and his passports and his KGB ID and all of this. And he, we were talking about the confession and he said, Carl wants me to sign it and have it notarized. I'll sign it. Can you take it into town and get it notarized? And I said, it doesn't work like that. You have to be there in front of the notary. So I start reading it. And the first page is all the aliases he's used, all his passports and social security numbers. And one of the aliases is Dan Cooper, DB Cooper. I had read a lot of articles about men in their eighties who had been caught years later for an armed robbery done 40, 50 years before and going to jail for it. And I was like, well, you can't sign this. They'll, if, some, if the person doing the notary reads it and calls the FBI, you'll go to jail. I was just so convinced that the, the FBI was gonna arrest him, put him in jail. I was so convinced they were gonna raid my house and take all the you know, passports I have that prove all of these different places he was during the 1970s and 80s. Um, I hid things. And now I laugh because I don't think they cared. Um, but we did, we sat on it because we really were afraid. We really do believe the story. We really do believe he is Cooper and we did not want him to go to jail. And so I showed the testimony to my mom, his confession, and she told him, don't do it. Don't sign it, Walt. Just don't do it. Um, even we had found Carl had tracked down an eyewitness whose story matched Walt's and everything. And we kept that secret for many years. I think Osadich. Osadich, Jeff Osadich. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting story in and of itself. Walt didn't remember where he landed. He just know, knew that it was near, he knew the freeways he took to get home. He knew he had landed on off of one freeway that intersected with another and had a river by it. He limped about a quarter to half a mile into a cafe and inside 
inside the cafe was a man with, he said, a, I won't use the word he used, but it was an expletive, something guitar. And he had a cowboy hat on. He said he was soaking wet because it was kind of sleeting out. And he had rolled up his parachute and put it in the parachute case that he had had the money in. And he had dumped the money in his raincoat and wrapped the raincoat up and put it under his arm. So he walks in, he said he's beet red and he sees the guy at the counter. He orders himself a cup of coffee, but he's shaking too hard. He can't drink it. And he says to the other guy at the, at the cafe, Hey, I, I need to call my buddy and tell him where I am. Could you give him directions? Cause I'm not sure where I am. And the cowboy said, sure. So Walt went to the back of the restaurant and to the payphone, called his friend, Don Brennan, said, Don, I did the thing. And Don's like, what are you talking about? I thought we, I thought you were kidding. We were drunk. I, I didn't think you were serious. And he goes, well, you need to come get me. I'm going to put somebody on the phone because I don't know where I am. So he called Cowboy over and, and Cowboy gave directions he left and Walt bought his cup of coffee. They shook hands and the guy told him, well, I'm playing in a band tonight, so I got to go. So he left. So Carl took out, he's, he was a pilot, a professional pilot himself. He took out flight maps and started looking at the freeways that Walt said he took home and flight paths that way and what could possibly be the flight path. And then he flew to, to Seattle and drove that route and stopped in a bunch of cafes and said, hey, by chance, 40 years ago, was there a guy who drove a lumber dump truck? And oh, that was another detail. My uncle said there was a dump truck in the parking lot um, and that the guy had been driving like a dump truck, but a lumber dump truck, not like a trash dump truck. Carl asked around and he met a waitress and she said, you know, that sounds like you're talking about the Tinaway Junction Cafe near Clayalum. And she goes, but you know, the cafe burnt down and ironically, there's a fire station there now. But you might want to go into the town, right? <laughs> and you might want to go into the town and ask around. So Carl went to the town, asked around, and he found the son of the owner of the cafe, a guy named Wayne Willett. And Wayne, I believe, owned a gas station, had lived in, in Cleelum for a long time. And Carl said, hey, is there a guy from 40 years ago who drove a lumber dump, dump truck and maybe sang in a cowboy band or a country band. And Wayne goes, yeah, that sounds like Jeff Osiadich. He's lived here his whole life and he plays in a country band. He used to work for a lumber company, drove a truck. Uh, so Carl left his card and said, can you have him, when you see him again, can you have him call me? And what's really interesting is I met Jeff, I think the first time, second time I met him was when the document, doc documentary, The Real D.B. Cooper, was shown in Cleelum to the whole townspeople. And I was sitting next to Jeff. I just, you know, um, had lunch with him and, you know, got to talk to him more about the story. And in the part of the interview where they interview Jeff, he talks about how this moment when Wayne says, hey, some guy from Florida was looking for you. Jeff says, I was thinking, what is it? The I, I don't know anybody from Florida is at the IRS or maybe a jealous husband. The whole town erupts laughing because I guess in his younger days, Jeff was quite the ladies man and had broken up a few marriages. So that's the gist that I got from people. So anyway, when he called Carl, Carl said, I'm, I'm going to ask you about 40 years ago, were you in the Tinaway Junction Cafe one night? 
when a guy limped in and was soaking wet and asked you for directions. And Jeff said, well, let me think about that. And he said, well, yeah, he goes, and I remember that night because I felt really bad. I had driven by him on the road and I didn't stop to pick him up. And then he comes into the cafe. I was like, sorry, buddy, I didn't pick you up. And he said, don't worry about it, kid. Um, and he said that, you know, he, he had no passenger seat, plus it was a company vehicle and it was against company policy to pick somebody up. So he said, the guy, you know, he goes, the guy was beat red and he had his coat under his arm. And I asked Jeff, why didn't you think that was weird? And he said, sure. I thought it was weird, but it was none of my business. And I was thinking that's so much like a guy not to, you know, ask those kind of details sometimes girl would be like, what are you doing? That's just stupid. Put your coat on. But anyway, um, and his story was the same. He said he got on the phone. He gave the guy directions. He said, which way are you coming through Snoqualmie Pass or Blewett Pass? The guy said Blewett. And he said, Andy, and you go, you know, it'll be snow in Stevens Pass and it'll take you about an hour and a half to two hours to get here. So that was the stories matched up, but with um, without a whole lot of detail. And then he said the same thing. My uncle bought his cup of coffee. They shook hands and he went to his first professional gig. He said he got paid less than five bucks, but because he got paid, it made him a professional. But that was why it stuck out in his head. And I asked him, I said, well, when you saw, heard about the hijacking and you saw the sketch, did you think that maybe you had met D.B. Cooper? And he said, no, because they said it was 150 miles away where he jumped. And that sketch didn't look like your uncle. It didn't look like anybody. It looked like an alien that he said, nobody has a chin that thin. So he just was like, he didn't hear about it, I think for like a week or so. And by then the sketch had been modified. The first sketch looks a lot more like my uncle, but then within a couple of days, they started thinning out the face and thinning out the face. Have you ever met Jeff's son, Darian? I met him at the, briefly at the um, launch of the documentary because he played, his band played, they're in a band. And Jeff and Darian wrote a song called The Money and the Man about Jeff's encounter. With I bring Cooper. that up because- And it's a really nice song. Yeah, I bring that up because from now on, the show will be ending with that song. Uh, I got permission Ooh. from Darian to use that in the show. Great. So, uh, yeah, interesting oh, that, that is it so happened funny. to be your episode, the first one that uh, will be the first episode that ends with The Money and the Man. It's a great song. I really like it. It is because even it just is so like haunting and sad in a way, isn't it? I, I don't know. I love it. I thought I thought they did a really nice job. There's a gentleman, uh, Todd Snyder, I believe his name is, who also has a song about D.B. Cooper, but uh, Darian's is way better. Oh. What what year did Walter die? He died on President's Day 2014. 2014. In, yeah, February 2014. So let's go 90 days after Walt passes. Is Carl now like we got to get this out. He was ready. Yeah, I think everything was ready to go by then. And you can see, I have a lot of letters from Carl. He became like an uncle to me himself. Um, and a lot of letters from him encouraging me to write my story because I have a different aspect of my uncle's story that hasn't been covered yet. Um, and the letters, like you said, the letters are really hilarious. Um, and his letters to my dog, <laughs> you know, and to my kids. But um, I think he was pretty much ready to go. I, 
I don't think it came out until 2016, 2017 though. Do you, I would say late 2017. Yeah. I think it was May, 2017 was when it came out. Cause I remember when it came out and there was a press conference and I remember, I believe it was Vern at the press conference. Does anyone have any questions? And no one had any questions. And I was like, how can no one have <laughs> no questions? This is crazy. I wish I was there. You know, it's really funny. And maybe you're an expert. You are such an expert on all of this. And I will say one thing I am not an expert on is all the other suspects. And I heard, I've heard you on this podcast talk about how you wanted to do this to explore all the suspects, not just one particular angle. And I, I think that's what makes the podcast so interesting. And you do such a great job, not only in the interviews, but also keeping an open mind, which I think is also very helpful. Well, you brought um, up at the beginning of this that all these D.B. Cooper suspects have the most interesting lives. Right. You know, whether or not Barb Dayton is Dan Cooper, I like that story. That is a right. great story. Barb led an amazing life. Um, the same thing could be said for E. Howard Hunt or uh, Kenny Christensen, even, who is probably one of the most boring, personally, suspects <laughs> uh, in the Vortex. I mean, that story is crazy. And then you have like the Ted Braden and you have Walter Recca and Pika, where it's like he became a secret agent and there was like a, a, like a mind control session thing he had it was in Boise Idaho too right Did he right so here's the, where the story gets conspiracy theorist and so I I will refer to facts and and let you know when I am veering off but at the time of the hijacking Walt was working for Vanell corporate corporation at the time, Vanell had multiple CIA contracts in Vietnam. Walt was working on the Grand Coulee Dam as an iron worker, but he had gotten the job through a man he called Phil Q. We, I have his full name and address and multiple addresses around the world, but Walt said he met Phil in Elsinore, California a few years before when he tried to join the CIA and he was turned down. Um, he was turned down and got the letter of rejection about two months after he had been arrested for a severe assault and battery. And that might've been the time that told him, somebody told him that airborne wasn't shit. So he beat the shit out of the guy. You might have to bleep <laughs> that. I apologize. But anyway, um, he, he was turned down a couple months after the assault and battery, but he had, I have the army intelligence letter where he was it was requested of army intelligence to test him for a language proficiency. And he came back proficient in Poland and Russia. So you're talking the height of the cold war and Phil Q got him the job at Vanell, I think to start getting him into Vanell as a possible mercenary. And there are several articles around this time about how Vanell was hiring veterans and um, special forces veterans to work in Saudi Arabia. And of course, for the next two years, Walt all of a sudden went from being destitute poor to doing a cash down payment on a house. And in the documentary, they interview the guy he paid the down payment to. And he remembers that Walt drove up in a brand new car. Um, and he starts going to Boise, Idaho on a regular basis for training. And he said, the most that he would say about the training, and he didn't tell me any of this, he told this to Carl, was that they would ask him really weird questions and he would 
and Carl will say, well, how did, would you answer? He goes, I'd answer like my life depended on it and I wanted to stay alive. But his, what he said after the hijacking is he went to work on Monday, but he was limping. And so he got called in by his management and sent to the infirmary where they said he had a broken leg. I don't know if Vanell keeps records like this years, you know, it's 50 years now. And if there would be any way to track this down, right. But that would be evidence that would show he had a broken leg right after uh, the hijacking. But anyway, within a couple weeks when he was back on the job, he was a, or a couple months, actually, he was approached by somebody on the job and they, uh, they invited him out for a beer. My uncle never turned down a beer. So especially a free one. So they went out, he with these two guys from the job and they just said vaguely, we know what you did. Do you want to go to jail? And he's like, no. Now in reality, he wasn't sure if they were talking about the fact it was a hijacking or the fact he was, he had skipped out on his parole for something else in Michigan, but he assumed it was the hijacking and he just said, no, I don't want to go to jail. So they're like, you work for us. So that sounds very weird, but I think when you watch like American Made with Tom Cruise about the Barry Seal story, he was approached the same way. So I think that there are some ties, not that that movie is probably as factual as Barry Seal's actual um, book or his tapes. But that's how he said he was approached. And that's how my uncle said he was approached. And so after that, he started training for a couple of years. And then within two years, he has all kinds of, he has passports with stamps from all over the world. And he starts working in Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Algeria, Scotland, other countries. He got his passport through the U.S. State Department two years before he legally changed his name. He was using RECA illegally, but he still got a passport through the state department. So I think certain, you know, things should, were taken care of or something behind the scenes. I can't imagine they wouldn't have known his, his birth certificate was faked. There would have been no history of him as RECA besides, you know, in Washington. So I don't know. That's just one of the interesting tidbits, but that's how he said, and then the Boise, Idaho stuff, Carl thought that was part of the MK Ultra program. I don't know. Walt never talked to me about that. And that was the whole, you know, mind control or using drugs to try to control people or hypnotism and that type of thing. I don't know. You might know more about that than I do. I don't know a lot about that program. And when Walt goes back to work Monday after the hijacking, mm-hmm. he reports that he broke his leg at work. I can't remember. He never told me. I don't know what it. I'd have to look at what he told Carl of where he said he broke it. I think he might've just said a mishap. They knew he was um, a parachutist. I mean, he, he parachuted, he learned in the army, but he continued for, you know, weekends and for fun and for excitement. He parachuted all the time. So they had to know that he might've told them he, he broke it parachuting over the weekend. I don't know. I really don't know what he told them. I thought the story was that he went to work and said he broke it at work so he would get the time off work and workman's comp would pay for the, the leg. And then that he would have that story that the leg was broken at work. Yeah. But I don't want to tell be. you your story. <laughs> no, I, I will just tell you that could be what he told Carl. I don't know that. 
I don't know that part of the story of what exactly he said. And he and I didn't discuss it. I, I really regret when he gave me the testimony and that there were so many questions I have. What I focused in on was why did you do this and do you have regrets? And he was really at the end of his life, he was afraid he was going to hell. And it wasn't the hijacking, it was what he did after. He told me some of the things he did after, only a couple things. And those couple things were enough to send you to hell. So I would say, um, yeah, I, I focused on that and those conversations and didn't get into the details of, I wish now I knew more about the hijack. I didn't know a lot about the hijacking, right? I didn't know much about it at that point, except what I saw on Wikipedia. So I wish I had known to ask him some of these detailed questions. I would have gotten so much more out of him. You know, I could have answered some more questions. Well, I want to know the answer to the questions you did ask. Why did he do it? And did he have regrets? Yeah, he did. Um, so he said at that point, what we would call it today is suicide by cop, right? He was contemplating whether or not to fall off the dam so his family could get insurance money or just do this harebrained idea. He, he was fearless. He was a criminal. I mean, he had several criminal charges. He had done the armed robbery. Um, he had been arrested when he was a juvenile. Um, so he thought, what the heck? People are robbing planes. And he called it robbing a plane. Robbing a bank and asking for a plane, just go rob the plane. He had talked to his different friends over the years about how they would do it. Um, so what he told me was he thought at that point he was better off dead than poor. And he just, I'm going to do it. I'll eat. If I get out, out the back of the plane, I will survive. He knew once he exited the plane, he would live Be between his parachute experience, his search and rescue experience. He had lived in the jungle. I mean, he had talked to us about the times he had lived in the jungle in Sierra Leone, you know, without anything, you know, just in a shack or just out by the side of the road. So, I mean, he felt very comfortable with his survival skills. Um, I think he thought that the FBI might charge the plane and shoot him. That was, I think, his biggest fear, right? But at that point, he didn't even care. He'd either succeed or he'd die trying. Um, afterwards, like I said, I, you know, I told him, well, you got away with this incredible crime. You're famous. And I'm kind of thinking, wow, I have a great story to tell my uncle's D.B. Cooper. Not really thinking about it from the victim standpoint, which is a whole nother side of the story that that is starting to come out, which I'm glad. Um, but I'm thinking, wow, this is cool. I can tell my friends and family. But he just he, he got very furious. I mean, he, he had a temper and he, he was just, I didn't get away with anything. And what happened after he said, just led me down this path where I couldn't get out for many years. And, um, and he just said, and I, and I don't know what's going to happen to me after I die. And he was very worried. Now I felt a lot better after talking to Loretta, Carl's wife, I saw Loretta just a couple months ago. Carl passed away in October, 2020. I talked to him on the phone about a week before he died. And he was like, Lisa story, don't you for a minute doubt that your uncle is not DB Cooper. He is, I know it. I knew it the night it happened. Loretta knew it. Art called me, Art Lucere. 
Willard called me, Willard's father called me and said, what did he do? We knew it, we knew it immediately. Um, and I have the evidence and all of that. But, um, and then I visited him a week before he died. Um, but at that point he wasn't talking as much. Anyway, I visited Loretta a couple months ago and, um, oh, shoot, I get sidetracked sometimes. Uh, she said that Walt had called her at some point and said, Hey, why didn't you tell me about your religion? She is a Jehovah witness. And the last year or two of my uncle's um, life, he was, you know, his health wasn't good. He got really overweight. My mom used to say, Walt, at least walk to the mailbox, get some type of exercise, right? But the, every Wednesday, the Jehovah Witnesses would knock on his door and he'd let them in. He was lonely. He'd let them in and they would read the Bible together. And they told him there's no such thing as hell, that that was created, that concept of hell was created I think it was Dante and the Dante's Inferno or whatever. And he, that made him feel a lot better. And so he talked to Loretta several times about hell and the fact that there is no hell. And that was a relief to him near the end because he really felt like he couldn't make up for the actions he took in his life. It's interesting. My grandfather, when he was on his deathbed, mm -hmm was convinced he was going to go to hell. Mm. And I was what? 17, maybe 18 at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was really hard on my mom because it was her father. And it, yeah, just that, that belief that you're going to go to hell on your deathbed. Did he um, have reasons for it or he just didn't think he was a good enough person in his life or he didn't think he was a good enough person I believe most of it probably had to do with like womanizing and cheating and that was uh you know sorry to throw shade on my grandfather but that, <laughs> that was his uh his vice was women yeah hey it happens to the best of them <laughs> <laughs> so it, Walt passes away in 2014 but you guys don't come forward until 2017. So tell me what happens in between there. So I start writing my story um, and going through his papers. I had packed up his papers, but didn't really read them. And, and even now I'll read something and go, oh my gosh, I missed this before, right? Uh, Carl continued, they, the person, Vern Jones, from Principia Media, who published his book and was working on the publication of the book, also started doing a documentary. So I think in 2016, they interviewed me for that documentary and they put that together. And I think we were just, Carl was, I was working on the story and just, you know, I work full time, I have a family, I have commitments. So just doing it here and there and on the weekends. But Carl was just also run, he ran a ranch in Florida and working on his story. I think just trying to tie up the loose ends. Uh, I just started going through all his papers and reading everything. I have, you know, more information than I even know what it means. Sometimes I, I'll find things online or that I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's what that was. Or uh, I will tell you something. This is really interesting. I think Walt and Carl, had said that when he worked overseas, the way he got his assignments was through foreign court media correspondence. And in fact, 
there was an article that he kept and it's one of the few assassination attempts he told my mom and I he did. And he said he couldn't tell me other things because that would get us both killed. And I'm like, well, you can tell me this one though. Like this could get us killed. But on it, he wrote that, um, and the headline said, you know, this person was killed. My uncle added on route to Moscow and he crossed out, it said foreign correspondent over the author's name and he he wrote CIA. And then he crossed that out. So he had a letter, like one or two letters in his files that, were from one of them was from the Detroit Free Press by gosh I'm gonna forget the guy's name it was either Adamson or Cruden and it's the first couple paragraphs he said were just baloney and it was basically thank you for the the photos we can't use them in our Polish calendar I don't know why the Detroit Free Press would do a Polish calendar but anyway they said if you're in Vienna though please stop by our office we'd love to see you so He said that was the way he got his directions. And I just figured that would be nothing that I could ever prove, or it was just an interesting tidbit, but I wasn't sure how much I even believed it. And not too long ago, I found online congressional testimony, um, official congressional documents where the CIA director says, yes, we use these foreign correspondents to pass on information or as actual spies. And then there are people like Dan Rather testifying in Congress saying, this has got to stop because when we have reporters or editors in these like war-torn countries, they get arrested and being accused of being a CIA spy because they assume all US uh, foreign correspondents are spies. And I also found like, uh, I think it was Khrushchev was complaining because this one reporter and I think it might have been the reporter who was on the article that my uncle gave me, uh, kept having information that nobody else knew, but their secret, you know, part of their KGB knew. Well, it's because he was connected to the CIA. So I just find that that it still doesn't, I, it's still not hard evidence, but it still shows that my uncle had these, these pieces of documents and that also tie to this bigger picture. And now I can tie it to congressional testimony. So I just find that really interesting. And I'm still discovering things. I, um, anyway, the, the book came out, uh, well, Carl's book came out, then Joe Keenan came out with a book where he took the tape recordings. When Carl was talking to my uncle over the years in 2000 to 2010, He started at some point recording them. And I know when people read the transcript or listen to the recordings, they talk about how they feel that Carl was leading the witness a little bit, pulling, almost like feeding him information. But there are two reasons for that. One, my uncle never exaggerated. He was, it was very difficult to get him to give you details. He gave you like yes and no answers, even though you didn't ask him a yes or no question. And the more interesting the story, the more he kept the details very low key. And at this point, Carl had already spoken and gotten the confession out of him. I think what he was trying to do is get it on tape, right? That's what he was trying to do. So you have a little bit of that in some portions. And then you get a little bit and there are times Carl's trying to get him to say something. And he's just like, No, that's not true. I did. I didn't plan it. I, I figured it out in the bar and wrote it down in the back of a, a bar napkin, right? And Carl 
many times is trying to talk about how much planning he put into it. And he's like, there might've been some planning, but it wasn't what, you know, he's just like trying to stop trying to make me out to sound like this great, brilliant mastermind. I wasn't, you know, or else I would have had some other details taken care of. So I, th- I think um, that that's something. So Joe Koenig's book comes out and Joe is a former Michigan state uh police officer who was the lead investigator on the Jimmy Hoffa investigation. Mm -hmm. He's a forensic linguist linguist. Thank you. And so he went through the recordings and the transcript looking for people do and say certain things when they lie. Right. And so he was looking for anywhere where there wasn't truth being told. And he, he determined that Waltz was not lying, that everything he said he at least believed to be true and was factual. He also interviewed Jeff Osiadich in person and looked at his tape recorded interview and also looked at a a written confession or story, you know, how, what happened. And he also determined Jeff to be telling the truth. I found out after the fact that he also looked at my interview that they did for the documentary and said, I was truthful. And I was like, I didn't know you were going to show it to him. You know, (laughs) I was like, well, thank goodness he found me to be truthful. Right. Everyone's but, uh, telling the truth except for Lisa. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, well, it's probably good because I probably would have been really nervous and not come across so well. <laughs> and then it would have looked like I was lying. All right. So the announcement finally comes out. Mm-hmm. Take me back to that day, the day before. What were you thinking was going to happen? Were you nervous? Were you excited? I thought because we had so many character traits that were tied and an eyewitness and a flight path. And and I know you might want to get into that later because it doesn't align, align with what the FBI said, but especially the eyewitness and the written testimony, the recorded testimony. I don't think any other witness is on tape that I know of. Now, I'm not an expert, you are, but I don't think any other suspect is on tape, any other eyewitness is on tape. I don't think there's, his written testimony is 11 pages or 12 pages, single space typed. I thought my home was going to be raided by the FBI looking for papers. I thought this was going to blow up. The day it happened or the day after, Carl was on Fox News and he tended to go off on different side tracks. So they had told him to kind of keep it brief, but he was too brief. And so his interview did not go really well. He, he was like, well, the guy asked him something like, so you think your best friend was DB Cooper? And he's like, well, yeah, or something along that line. And then the guy's like, okay, like, tell me more. And Carl's just sitting there like, well, of course, didn't you read my, I mean, he just didn't expand on it. So the the poor reporter, I think they were going to do a 10 minute interview and they cut it off after like a minute or two. And Carl was just trying to be brief, like he was told because he often went off um, side stories and all of that. And, and so they cut it off. And then that afternoon, there was a a school shooting with quite a few uh, children killed. And that just became the headline and it took over the news cycle and this went nowhere. In my opinion, it just disappeared. I think it got a little bit of attention and I think people in the media and other people took it a little as him as a credible suspect. 
it didn't go anywhere. But I will tell you something very interesting, in my opinion. <laughs> in 2016, right before the book and the, and the documentary came out, my mom, I saw somebody interviewed that used to be our next door neighbor. And I reached out, she had moved back to Las Vegas. She's one of the first female FBI agents on the West Coast. And she had been our neighbor when we first moved to Las Vegas. So I reached out to her and said, hey, can we do dinner? So my mom and I went and had dinner with her and I brought my uncle's confession. And we were talking and then I told her about Waltz and you know he had passed away a couple of years before. And I said, hey, um, I have this confession and we told her the whole story. And I brought with me the KGB ID, his different passports, his jump book, some different documentation that would show we're being sincere. And she knew us, she knew we're, we weren't lunatics, right? This, is, this was not the type of thing we talk about. You don't catch my mom and I talking about this kind of thing or conspiracy theories or that very, op very often or at all. So she knew we were normal, average people. Well, she was retired FBI, but she said, email me a draft of this. So I emailed it to her and she sent it to she said the Portland FBI office, and she said, these friends of mine, they're normal people. They are not crazy, I swear to you. But they had this confession from a family member that says these D.B. Cooper, and he, there's, this is a lengthy, detailed confession, uh, and you might be interested in it. Um, she got a, a reply back that she said she thought was very, very odd. It, the person sent it back and said, I'm not going to look at it because we're deciding to close the case, but thank you very much. And she said, the reason it's odd is that out of professional courtesy, when a fellow agent says, I think you should look at this, you do it just out of professional courtesy. She had never in her life been told by another FBI agent, sorry, I'm not even gonna look at that. So she thought that that was really odd. She didn't say that proved anything. She didn't say she believed the story or anything along that line, but she just said, I, I just think that's just really weird. And then soon after that, they closed the case, right? That's when they shut down the case in 2016. I don't know the month. I can tell you that I know that our discussion with her happened well before the elections because we had talked about the elections with her. And I remember that conversation we had, which is unrelated to this. So I know it happened before the elections in 2016, exactly when I don't remember. July, July of 2016, as far as I'm aware, is when the FBI announced they were closing the investigation. Okay. And I don't know when we had dinner with her. And, and when she sent the paperwork to them. And I don't know if it was right after they shut down the case or right before they shut down the case. And there's also an odd story with Carl and Walt about Carl sort of stealing some of Walt's DNA. Yeah. And getting that submitted. So Carl really wanted to prove this like hard evidence. And I think we had that discussion on the suspects panel at CooperCon, what is it going to take? And I even think if you come up with DNA evidence, there'll still be people who aren't convinced, right? Because what do they have to compare it with? They destroyed the cigarettes, um, they lost the hair. They don't know if the tie was actually Cooper's or somebody else's because they found it wedged in the between the seats, that type of thing, right? So anyway, 
Carl was hoping they did have DNA evidence. This, the hijacking happened in 71 years before they knew how to do DNA evidence. So he had hired an attorney and told him the story, but he didn't tell him Walt's name or where Walt lived. Meanwhile, Carl had seen Walt at a get together. And while Walt had left the room, he took a tissue that Walt had blown his nose in, which is disgusting, and put it in a baggie, tucked it in his shirt. He gave that to the attorney. The attorney sent the information and the story um, kind of about how Carl tracked down the eyewitness, who the eyewitness was, I think, or just that the, you know, Don Brennan had picked him up, but didn't give any names, including the name of Don Brennan. So kind of general details about the case. And the attorney sent it up to, I think it was Larry Carr, Agent Larry Carr, I think, I don't know for a fact. And nothing happened for a while. There was some going back and forth. And then eventually Larry Carr came back and said, um, uh, there's no DNA match, but what was the name of the person who picked him up? And which they thought was weird. If there was no DNA match, then why would you care who picked him up, right? But in the meantime, after it was sent off, Walt got a, called up Carl and Carl had not told him he had done this. And he was furious and he said, why did you DNA me? I can't believe you did that. I trusted you. We're done. We are not talking again. That's it. It's over. And he hung up and he wouldn't speak to Carl for some time. And then after that, he wouldn't allow Carl to record him. So Carl's suspicion, and this is, you know, his suspicion and theory is that somebody at the FBI alerted Walt that his DNA had been submitted. I love that, that story. That yeah. is so crazy. It is very crazy. And, you know, I'll tell you something else, Darren, this is so funny because little things pop into my head that I think nothing of. There was a time when I was a newlywed. I don't know if I had had my first child or not. I might've been just recently married and I had moved back in with my mom, I think. And we were saving up for our first house and Walt came into town and it was very weird. He came into town and he came to visit us for two hours. And then he immediately turned around and drove home. And he said he had, I think he said he, had, and this is vague. So he had driven a friend into town and the friend was picking up a car to drive it back to Michigan. And I said, well, why don't, why did you, you know, why didn't you guys fly in or why didn't you fly in? There was some reason I asked him, you should have flown in. And he said, I can't get on an airplane. I'm on a no fly list. I'm not allowed on airplanes or something like this. And I'm, this was 1980, between 1985 and 1989 that this happened. And I had never heard of such a thing. And I don't, know if he called it a no fly list or a, I'm not allowed, but he said, I'm not allowed on airplanes. And I said, why not? He was, I have a criminal past. I can't get on an airplane. My name's on a list is something like he said. The other thing he said, which is hilarious was um, I'm not staying because we said, well, you're here, stay overnight. We have an extra bedroom. And he said, no, I got to leave. I was kicked out of Las Vegas and told never to return by the sheriff. So I have to leave. And I said, when did that happen? He said in 1960, 61, whatever. He, I said, well, that sheriff's dead. I can tell you, I know that <laughs> sheriff and I know he's dead because he himself was quite infamous himself. And I said, no one will know you can stay overnight. And he had, he was still pissed 
25 years later that the sheriff had kicked him out of Las Vegas and said, don't ever return. And that was because, and those are big headlines, right? Um, and the local papers, he and his friends, had, Art Lucere and another friend had come to town and pitched the idea of a parachute show, a jump show. And what the Hacienda general manager, Dick Taylor said, well, okay, we'll give it a try. So they, they had a few jumps and people really loved it. The problem was that in order to watch the show, people had to stop gambling and leave the casino to watch it. And that is not good for casino business. They do not, there is a reason there are no windows or clocks in a casino. It's so that you don't know what time it is and you don't leave those tables until every penny you have is gone. So there was a point where Dick Taylor called Walt and his friends and said, guys, you guys are great. Everybody loves your show, but we're losing money because people are stopping gambling. You got one more jump. So Walt and his buddies plant a story a couple days before the jump that they're going to test out some new kind of flight suit, like those bat suits. And so the day of their final jump, the media's there, everybody's out to watch them. Two bodies leave the plane and one pulls a chute. The other one doesn't pull a chute and the bodies keeps coming and coming and coming closer and closer and closer. And people are screaming and the body hits the ground. The women are passing out, men are puking. My uncle's in the crowd laughing because they think it's my uncle, but it was a dummy. And so they had done this that they thought would just be hilarious. Well, they all got arrested and put in jail. And then when they made bail, they were escorted out of town by the sheriff. And he said, don't ever come back. I think they were put on an airplane with one-way tickets back to Michigan and told, don't ever come back to this town. So he like 25 years later was still angry and wouldn't come back to Vegas. I think that's actually pretty funny. I mean, yeah. for a few minutes, it's not funny. <laughs> but once you find out, oh yeah, it was just a joke. Ha ha ha. Um, yeah, I, I'm messed up enough that I could laugh at that point. Laughed at, yeah. <laughs> but that was the kind of stuff they did for years. So you guys come forward with all of this. And then, like you said, it just kind of faded away real quick after that. Was that disappointing? Yeah, it was. And I just recently, we did do an Expedition Unknown, the Discovery Channel episode with Josh Gates. And I was able to get some of the information out. And we were looking, there was a scene where we're all out there with like 12 volunteers with metal detectors. And I just knew we weren't in the right location. So I was really disappointed but the right location to look was private property and they didn't, they couldn't really get, I, I guess, permission or something to raid these people's property. Um, but one of the people asked me, what do you want to get out of this? Why, you know, why do you care? Cause I really wanted to find solid evidence. You know, I wanted to find the parachute, I, you know, and, and they're like, why? And I couldn't answer the question. And I think I was just disappointed. I really do think it's him. And there are so many things that tie him to this story and to this crime. And I, I still can't really answer that question because I don't think it's going to make anybody in my family wealthy. It's not. And um, I, so I don't know. I guess I would like that peace of mind because I am kind of a fact-based person. 
uh, it's nice to have the romantic vision of things, but it would be nice to know for a fact. So that's, it, it was disappointing though, that it just faded away because I do think out of almost all the suspects that I'm aware of, again, you're the expert, I'm not as much. It does seem like there is far more information tying him to the crime than not tying him to the crime, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Like you said, this is the only case I'm, or suspect I'm aware of where you have a corroborating witness. And then you also have, you can listen to Walt's confession. It's not like you have to take the word for it of someone who had passed away, who was in the room, who heard the confession. Uh, The documentary is called D.B. Cooper, The Real Story. And you can hear Walt's own voice confess to the crime in that. Mm -hmm. I think that's so valuable. I think so too. And you can tell by the way he talks about things that he doesn't, he's not a braggart, right? I think when you hear him, he's, he's just not somebody who brags. There was a time um, where he jumped out of an airplane and broke his foot really bad where the bones were sticking out. And he told his buddies, and one of the guys he was jumping with is Ken Sisler, who is, if, look him up on Wikipedia, because he's a war hero. And they were doing some night jumps in the winter in Michigan in January. It was very cold. And he told his friends, hey, I broke my foot. You need to take me to the hospital. And they said, we're going up for one more jump. We'll take you when we get back. And he said, well, then I'm going too. And they said, well, you know, who are you going to jump on? You're going to break the other foot. And he said, no, or you're going to hurt your broken foot. He said, no, I'll land on the good one. Well, it was really windy. He pulled his chute too late. He got dragged. He broke the other leg. And um, I asked him, well, at what point, Walt, did you think that jumping out of an airplane with a broken leg was a bad idea? And I thought he'd say when I broke the other one or when my wife, you know, yelled at me because I lost my job or that kind of, cause I couldn't stand on two feet cause he was a barber at the time. But he said, when I was sitting on the toilet and I realized I couldn't wipe my own ass. <laughs> it, I and that was be, it. Like that's the, that's the only thing he said related to it. You know, I might be wrong, but didn't with the second broken leg, didn't Walt say, well, let's go grab a beer on the way to the hospital. And they w- stopped at the bar on the way to the hospital to get a beer. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, it helped fight the pain, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think I need something a little bit more than a beer at that point. Well, Carl said this about my uncle and he knew my uncle. I knew my uncle later in life when he was in his fifties and older, Carl knew knew him in his young brash years and also later in life. But he said that my uncle was, um, could take pain like nobody else he ever saw, you know, that he had never met anybody who could handle pain, who had a pain threshold at the level that Walt did. Um, but it makes sense. Maybe it was because he was always drunk. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. He was always two sheets to the wind or whatever that expression is. So. All right. Here's a tough question for you. Yep. What is the best evidence for Walt Recca being Dan Cooper? For me, it's the fact that he handed out money at the Bob's Big Boy robbery. And he also handed money to Tina Mucklow because I think that that is never done. I think the eyewitness, I think Jeff Osiadich is a former police officer. He's lived in that area his entire life. That entire town came out and saw that documentary. And not one person afterwards came up to me and said, 
don't believe Jeff, he's lying, or I wouldn't trust Jeff. Not one person, they came up, they asked for my autograph on Carl's book. They asked, they were very respectful. They believed the story, they believed Jeff. And I think you have to believe an entire town, right? Um, I'm surprised they haven't put up like for trying to get people to come there for tourism home, you know, where DB Cooper landed or something, but they're just, they're just interesting people. Like they're, they're salt of the earth people. Many of them have lived there their whole life. It's a logging community, a mining community. Um, they're, you know, they're just strong willed people and they believe Jeff. And so I don't see why other people can't believe Jeff. And I do know that probably should lead to the discussion of the flight path, right? Right. I was going to say, you know, I, I don't really have to ask you what the worst evidence is because everyone else brings it up for you, right? Right. So here's what I would say. I thought when I listened to Cliff Ammerman at CooperCon, I would be like, oh, I don't know how to get past this. But he reinforced the story for me. And he was an air traffic controller on duty that night. He said he talked to the pilots only twice because, and he said, in order to know what the transcript of that flight direction and the direction they were given, it would have to get the transcript from Northwest Airlines because Northwest Airlines directed the plane's path out of Sacramento. And that is never done. If the plane leaves Seattle, it's usually out of Seattle. The other thing um, that I would say is that people like James Baker, former Department of Defense Secretary or Secretary of State, I'm not sure which one he was, Vanell had on their board of directors these type of people. Um, I have a book called, um, what's it called? Ropes of Sand by uh, Wilbur Eveland. He's one of the first FBI agents and he was a vice president of Vanell and he talks, his his book is about America's failure in the Middle East. Um, and he talks about Vanell and their role with the CIA and the contractors. There have been, I don't know if this is credible. Somebody said at CooperCon that there had been a transcript and they had a copy of it, but they lost it when their computer crashed that said, identified the hijacker as having a police um, record. So they knew while he was in the air who the hijacker was. To me, I, I think, um, and the other thing Ammerman said was that the published FBI flight path came out of McCord, most likely based on the Air Force jet radar on their planes or something along that line, if I remember correctly. So that is what the Air Force put out based on what the jets flew. The jets and the pilots are in the FBI reports saying that they lost the plane because they go much faster, right? And so they, they lost in their interviewer, the FBI's report about the jets. At some point, they lost the 727 Flight 305 because they were going a lot faster. And they said the plane made a sharp turn. But it was a turn that like it was like a sharp right or something or a sharp. I don't know. They said that. And it's in, I have to find that paperwork. It's in the thousands of pages I've already read and didn't mark, which is crazy. I should do that. But anyway, I think the flight path is still up in the air. The other thing I will say is I talked to Catherine Scott, the captain's daughter and her fiance at CooperCon. 
And it was the first night I sat down and um, she wasn't at the table and I introduced myself and he said, he introduced himself. He said he is her fiance and he's a pilot. And I told him, he asked why I was there. Was I a fan? And I said, well, actually my uncle's one of the suspects. And I told him briefly the story and he said, wow, that's really interesting. And then I said, but the only thing that doesn't line up is the flight path. And he said, well, honestly, they did that manually back then. And Catherine's dad did say that, you know, it's not exact science. And I said, yeah, but 150 miles off. And he just shrugged. Now I took the shrug as meaning maybe it could be, maybe not, but that's what I want to believe the shrug was. Maybe the shrug was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. 150 miles is way too much, right? (laughs) Okay. 150, not so much. I would say that if we are going to have a credible eyewitness and all of this other information, why would we pick so far away, right? Why would we make that up? as um, me, Carl, me, Jeff Osiadich, why would we choose so far away? And so my feeling is that the flight had to go a path that was much, was lower because the, the plane was supposed to fly low and slow and that Carl was able to take out pilot maps and trace the appropriate mat, um, path and that the real path wasn't given out because Walt was already being groomed to work for Vanell and to go overseas. And so that's my, that's a theory though. I cannot, I have to be honest, I cannot prove it, but someday I hope I can. I, I don't know. How do you, I would love a former vanilla employee who worked with my uncle on the dam to reach out to me if there, you know, if there's anybody still out there. I have had people from his, you know, um, the union and his union fight um, right before the hijacking, which led him, which is, why I think he's named Cooper, the union uh, leader, Henry Cooper threatened his life. You know, he thinks almost took his baby's life, you know? So uh, that person reached out to me and said he had gone with my uncle to a safe deposit box in uh, Canada and had seen gold bars and gold coins and all of that. And, and this was in the late 1980s after he got back from overseas. So that's pretty wild. I know. So he could verify that story. One thing I think is funny of the people who dismiss Rekka when they're like, oh yeah, it's way outside the flight path, but I'm a fan of the Western flight path. It's like (laughs) you could debate the flight path, but someone who says it was outside of it, they're automatically wrong. Mm -hmm. I I never quite understood that. And, you know, there is a witness account. So if, if Rekka, fine, let's say he's not Cooper. What was he doing falling out of the sky in Clay Elm that night? Right. In a suit. In a suit. suit And loafers. Oh, another thing that Jeff Osiadich said, and I don't know if you've ever spoken to him yourself, but he said he remembers my uncle's shoes because he always wanted a pair of loafers like that. And, you know, he always had work boots and stuff and no place to wear nice shoes. And so he noticed my uncle's shoes. The other thing... I really feel strongly about this other topic. One of the things that Walt said he did is he handed Don Brennan when he picked him up two or three packs of money said here and now keep your mouth shut. Right. Cause now you're implicated, but also thanks for picking me up. Here's money for your trouble, but also keep your mouth shut in the FBI interviews. And, and I have the exact 
one, you know, one's written down. The head of the bank security, where the money came from, said that the money had bank type bands with First Seattle Bank, another bank name and other banks, and they named the other bank, I just don't remember what it is, printed on it. And that was the money they delivered. Tina Mucklow said, when the hijacker was going through the bag of money, it was wrapped in bank type bands. And then that's when she was trying to joke with him and he handed her a package of the money. She is not a bank employee. She would not call it bank type bands if it was wrapped in rubber bands. She would say it was wrapped in rubber bands. If she saw rubber bands, she would say rubber bands. She's a flight attendant. But she said bank type bands. Everybody knows what those are, those paper bands. The Tina Bar money was found stacked on top of each other, wrapped in rubber bands. And I really feel like people discount that as evidence. And whether you think that was the money Don Brennan had and he wanted to get rid of it because it had, you know, the serial numbers were tracked and he was afraid he'd be found. And then maybe he's like, oh, or maybe he buried it in his backyard and it deteriorated. So now he's like, hey, telling the Engrams, go find this money and we can share the, you know, the FBI reward. I don't know. That's my theory. And my guess is that that money at least proves whether or not you believe Walt is D.B. Cooper, that money proves that money was repackaged when it made it to earth. It was repackaged in rubber bands because the bank head of security said it was in paper bands with certain printing on it. And Tina Mucklow said it when it was on the plane, it was in bank type bands. And I didn't even realize this till I read an article recently, the, the banks often had money put aside for ransoms, right? So that they could pull it right away. And they had it already, the serial numbers already on microfilm. And I, it didn't make sense to me when I was reading the FBI paperwork, why it said, here's the microfilm, only look at these numbers, don't look at the other numbers. That's for the other 30 or $50,000. And I was like, I thought they only gave them 200,000. Well, now I put two and two together. They only gave $200,000, but they gave a microfilm for the $250,000 that they had pre um, put onto the microfilm. They didn't have to take the money apart, count it, microfilm it, put it back together and get, deliver it to the plane. They didn't have time to do that with, you know, what is, what was that? 10,000, $20 bills. They didn't mm -hmm. have time to do that in an hour or two. It was already done, which means that when they say that it was in paper bands, it was in paper bands because it had already been prepped and repackaged by the bank. So that to me is a really important point to proving Cooper survived the jump, I think. Um, and for me, Don Brennan lived at the, about the time the Tina Bar money was found. He lived about an hour and a half north of Tina Bar. So he lived, I think it's Olympia, which is directly north of there. Yeah, I've always thought that was a really interesting thing. You know, Cooper asks for $200,000 mm -hmm. and they go get this money from the bank where they had 250000 set aside for such an occasion. Right. Do you think Walt knew that there was money they had set aside? Or do you think he just was like, hey, 200000 sounds good. Walt had a series of a lot of friends in a lot of different areas. It's possible he knew, like he had a friend who worked at a bank. I know I asked him once, one of his aliases was James Allen O'Brennan. And I said, who's that? 
when I was reading his confession, he said, it's a he's a bank robber. And I was like, <laughs> a bank robber? When did you rob a bank? Like, I don't, what? But I don't know if he was just kidding or tying that together, but maybe that, and again, I can't tie that to anything, but I would put it past Walt to know somebody who worked at a bank who would have told him that they had money set aside already for ransom, for kidnapping. You can't, you know, if you got a kidnapping and they need $200,000, a lot of times banks, you know, if it's a smaller bank in a smaller community, they may not have that much in their vaults, right? So you have to have it and be able to pull it quickly. I would say something that Vern said about the flight path being done out of Sacramento. There's a heavy CIA presence in Sacramento and his book is going to come out in early in January about the investigation Vern's and book? about car. Yeah. Vern Jones has written a book and I guess it's about how they track down these stories to try to verify Carl's story and Walt's story and the whole process of verifying the story and why they think it's, it's Walt. But According to Vernon, and this is according to his research, I don't have direct knowledge of this, but um, Sacramento has a heavy CIA presence, and that's where Northwest Airlines and where the plane was directed from was out of Sacramento, which is uncommon for a plane coming out of Seattle. All right. Now, if I could speak to Vern real quick, why am I just hearing about this now, Vern? Why didn't you tell me, bro? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'd be happy to come on and, and talk to you about his latest venture. <laughs> All right. Was Walt's bomb real? No, I don't think so. He said it was not. He said it was flares and a battery, but no, I do not think that Walt would have wanted to kill anybody on that plane. And I don't think he probably ever thought twice about the mental anguish he caused anybody on that plane. I really don't think he thought about it twice after he survived. He just moved on with his life. However, when they were on the ground, if the plane had been stormed, I don't think he would have sat there either. So people could have gotten hurt, right? He had, he was a very, um, he had a violent past. Would he have just like, they stormed the plane. He would not have, he would not have gone to jail he would not have gone, been taken alive. And in not being taken alive, somebody else would have, could have died or gotten hurt. So, but I don't think he, um, just like he said, when he robbed the Bob's big boy, he took in a machine gun, but he said it was empty. So to avoid, he didn't want to like accidentally get nervous and press a trigger and shoot his own foot or shoot somebody else. He really didn't want to hurt people. He just wanted the money. He always saw it as he's taking from the corporation. He was robbing a plane, Northwest Airline paid insurance money. Um, The insurance company would be the one that would fork over the ransom, you know, and have to cover the ransom. So Northwest was getting their money's worth on their insurance payments. Is that how he looked at it, right? And that's how he looked at the big boy robbery. They had insurance for this stuff. They were going to get paid anyway. So he wasn't really robbing. He was doing everybody a service, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's how you explain it away. Lisa, what do you need to prove to everyone without a doubt you were right all along? It probably would have to take somebody from the FBI to say it was Walt. Not that everybody else would believe it. They might think it was, you know, I think today's day and age, we're all so caught up in conspiracies. And that's probably because there are conspiracies that are proven true, right? So then 
it, it makes sense that other things we can't explain could be a conspiracy. I, I, for me, I think it's the FBI saying, yes, it was him. You know, the, the CIA would never say anything. Vanell would never say anything, right? Because um, they wouldn't want to be tied to something like that. Maybe Northwest Airline, if there was a transcript and we could prove the flight path did go that direction. I think if you can prove the flight path and we have the eyewitness and the landing spot, I think that would tie it together and help me convince other people, right? Why do you think so many people have confessed? It's become folklore and romantic. And that's why I think it's really important. There's, I think, a movie coming out featuring Tina Mucklow and her story, because one of the things that's on recorded on the tape with Carl is that he talks about when he handed Florence Schaffner the note saying, I'm hijacking the plane. Carl was asking him questions like, what, what were you thinking or what, you know, and he said something like, and he asked her like, what did she say? And he goes, she just looked at me. Like she just stared at me. He goes, I think she was as afraid as, as upset and afraid as I was or something along that line. Right. I think we forget there were victims in this story. And I think about Tina Mucklow. She was the, how calm, Florence lost it. She couldn't even speak. She was just mouthing. All she could get out was Tina when Tina came up to her because she could tell something was going on. And she dropped the note, Tina picked it up. Florence Schaffner went up to the cockpit and relayed the, the demands, right? And then Tina sat down and next to the hijacker and kept him calm and was the go-between to the point where several people on the plane didn't even know it was being hijacked until after they got off, right? And her presence of mind and, and her, she wasn't trained for that, I wouldn't think, but she was younger than my youngest daughter is now. And so I think about my 24-year-old daughter being in that situation and how horrible it was. And she talked about how she didn't break down until afterwards. She had to have had nightmares. She didn't know if the bomb was real or not. They had to assume it was. They didn't know what would possibly set him off. Um, so from their perspective, the story's never been told from the victim's point of view. And I'm really glad the story's coming out because I do think it's easy to romanticize the story. And that goes back to your question. I think that's why so many people have come out and said, I'm the person, or I think my friend is. Uh, there was somebody, I created a Facebook page called D.B. Cooper Story for my last name story. So I can share some of the stuff about my uncle and pictures and photos and clips of his letters and all of that. And somebody just started posting like all of these pictures that their dad looks like Cooper, but it's a sketch I've never seen before. It's not an official FBI sketch. I'm like, you're not, I don't know where that sketch came from, but he, and he's just posting everything. And I'm like, you know what? You need to join the DB Cooper mystery group. Cause that's where all the experts are. And they can talk to you about your <laughs> theories. I just know my uncle's story. I really do not know anybody else's story. I think all of the, a lot of these more credible suspects are very interesting people. And I can see why people put them together. Um, but I don't know what, maybe at this point, they don't think they'll go to jail. Obviously the reason we didn't come out is we thought my uncle would go to jail. So we didn't come forward because we thought he really, truly, there was enough credible evidence. He would go to jail. Then I was afraid when we were sitting on it, 
that I would go to jail for accessory to a crime because I never came forward. So you talk, you asked me that earlier, what, what I was thinking. And I was thinking, do I go to the FBI or not? And then when I did, right, they didn't even want to hear about it. They just said, no, thank you. Case closed. I guess you didn't need to be nervous, right? I know, right? <laughs> Hiding things in my, in my house, you know, oh no. All right. Let me ask you a weird question now. Why does this case and D.B. Cooper appeal more to men than women? At CooperCon, if you looked around the room, mostly dudes. Uh, if you go on the forums to talk D.B. Cooper, almost exclusively dudes. Uh, if I look at my audience, if I look at the people who follow me on Twitter or Facebook, the vast majority, over 90% men. Why is that? Okay. This is junk science. I think it's because men look at it of how would I have done this? Could I have gotten away with it? I parachute. He was polite. He didn't run around threatening people's lives. So they look at it from the criminal aspect. Was he an expert parachutist or was he an amateur? Um, And they look at it from the mystery and the solving. Women probably take it more uh, from looking at the victim side maybe. And, um, that's not so funny. I always say, um, when people, when a man and a woman get in an argument, the man will just throw the glass and smash it. The woman will go to throw it, but then go, Oh, darn it. Then I'll have to, the liquid will go everywhere. And then I got to sweep it up. And then probably when I'm walking barefoot, I'm going to step on the glass. And so they think about those what ifs and the what afters and think that through. I I think, and that means that women would think through how did the crew feel like they must've been terrified. And so maybe they don't romanticize it as much as the guys do. I don't, that's just my guess. I really don't know. It is an interesting question because when you look at some of these um, like wine and crime podcasts and unsolved mysteries and all of that, there are a lot of women involved in that and interested in that but they're not interested in this story. Yeah. I have a friend that does a pretty big podcast and a true crime one. And I asked him and he said, dude, my audience is probably 70, 75% female. Really? And I was like, well, my audience is 90% dudes. And I just find that so interesting. And maybe there's something a little even heroic about somebody just, you know, getting away with it and jumping out of the back of the plane and, and men putting themselves in that position. Like if I did this, how would I do that? Or I want to solve this. I I don't know. It's a really good question. I liked your answer. Okay, good. All right. (laughs) Next question. So why don't you think your story, the Walter Recca story gets the attention that it deserves? Um, I, I think there are two things. I think still the public perception of what the flight path is and how um, legitimate it is, which I I do think that it's not the flight path that was flown. But I think people are like, it's a done deal. It's just too far away. And I also feel like those of us who are involved, um, we're not trying to become celebrities. And we're not trying to make Walt a celebrity. And I know that it's like, yeah, but you have these books and these documentaries. Carl really wanted to tell Walt's story. He didn't want him because it was almost more of what happened afterwards. That's more interesting. And the 
the patriotic duty he thought he was serving, but then he really wasn't. He was serving corporate interests. Um, I, I think Carl wanted that story to get out and he thought the Cooper story would sell that, right? You know, that that would be the, the hook that people would be interested in. But if you look a lot at, we're not out there trying to get um, our own show or anything along that line. And, and I, maybe that's why it's died. We're not as enthusiastic. Vern has done a really good job of investigating this and getting credible investigators to look at the evidence. He'll even say when you, I, I think you've interviewed him before. He'll even say he wasn't even convinced for like two years. He wanted proof. He wanted, he wanted to talk to Jeff Osiadic himself. He didn't want to just take Carl's word for it. He wanted to talk to me himself. He, you know, and all of these things. And he wanted to know, am I a crackpot or not? So I don't know. It, um, but does it matter? I guess it doesn't really matter. I'm just proud of myself. I actually finished something and I have the story put together. I, like I said, you and I will probably be the only people who read it in my family, but I finished it. And it's, it's a tribute to my uncle and and maybe, and I think I still am really interested in tracking down more about his mercenary years. All right. So we've got D.B. Cooper and Me by Carl Lauren. Getting mm-hmm. the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper by Joe Koenig. We have Vern's upcoming book, Breaking News from Lisa's Story. When can we expect your book? I hope by spring. I, I, I'm going through and editing myself and then I need to get an editor and then I'll, you know, like I said, then I have to figure out how to publish it because I don't have a lot of money and extra money to do this. So, um, and that costs some money. So it's when I can save up enough, right? But mine is going to be called Better Off Dead Than Poor. I love Story, the name. Thank you. Stories and letters from D.B. Cooper because they had, they had some crazy parachute stories. Uh, Loretta talks about when she met Carl. She met Carl through Walt and his wife, Joni. And so Joni invited her out to the Saginaw airfield where they did these weekend shows and people started coming out. Well, Carl was trying to impress her. So he did something that a lot of them did at that time is they'd wait till the last possible second to pull their chute. So she thought he was going to die and he pulled a chute just, you know, he said a few feet off the ground, but it's probably like a hundred feet off the ground or something. And when he walked over to her and like, hi, you know, cause he knew that they were being set up. She was like, you're a real jerk. And she walked away from him. <laughs> so she tells that story. It's really funny and, and everything, but they, you know, they just had those fun stories that are about an era of men that uh, we don't hear about. And they were heroes in their own right. Um, patriots even if they were criminals, they were patriots still. They believed in their country. Um, they fought for their country. You know, my uncle and I had a whole debate about Kent State. You know, He thought those students deserved to die because they threw rocks at the National Guard. And I'm like, my daughter was in college, my oldest at the time, and had gone to a protest about um, and I said, what if somebody had thrown a rock at the police officers and they shot her, you know? And she wasn't even the one who, who threw the rock. And he's like, well, yeah, I can see what you're saying. But he got very angry because he's just, he also felt, I said, there were students walking to class and just got hit by the fire. They had nothing to do with the protest. And I think he saw them as draft dodgers. They were in college, so they didn't have to go to Vietnam. And, you know, he just was very like hardcore when it came to that. So we had some interesting conversations and I have some of those in the book, you know. 
Well, if you're listening to this after spring of 2022, make sure you pick up Lisa's book, Better Off Dead Than Poor. Yeah. All right, Lisa, have we missed anything? I think we covered everything. Thank you so much. It, it, I really enjoyed meeting you at CooperCon. I, I recognized your voice first. I was like, are you Darren? <laughs> so it was great to put a face with a name. Yeah, it was great to meet you too. I think this is the first podcast I've done where I met someone in person and then did a remote interview. So that's yeah. a little bit backwards. <laughs> okay. But yeah, we, I wanted to do it in person. I brought all my podcast gear, but you left a little bit earlier than me and I was pretty busy that weekend, but yeah. I'm glad we were able to get together and do this. Lisa, you are wonderful. I th- appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. And you were a great panel leader at CooperCon. You did a great job asking questions, really interesting questions too, questions I didn't anticipate. And so I, you were great. I hope you are there in the future too. Yeah. I'll see you next year, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Look got- for me and Lisa at CooperCon 2022. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. You, Thank you, Appreciate Lisa. It. If you can't wait for Lisa's book to come out and you need more Walt Recca, I'd recommend watching D.B. Cooper, The Real Story. It's on Amazon. I think I paid like 10 bucks for it. It's four 45-minute episodes. And if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it, honestly, you are missing out. It's good. There's also the book D.B. Cooper and Me by Carl Lauren and Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper by Joe Koenig. If you're listening to this in the future, then go look for Lisa's book. Don't forget that as soon as I'm done speaking, you'll hear Darian Osadich sing Money and the Man. Do you have a hot take on this case? Do you have all the answers? Want to come on the show and tell me everyone is wrong? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Lisa Story for letting me eat her leftover pizza at CooperCon. Thank you to Russell Colbert, who also loves leftover pizza. Thank you to Darian Osadich for permission to play his tune on the show. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex. I jacked a plane so we were told Then he jumped into the cold Rats of bourbon and a cigarette In the air the stage is set Polite and kind the people say It's time to make his getaway This is how the story goes About the money and the man they call me now Catch me if you can Roll up in his cold-built tight He's got enough to change his life Where he landed no one knows But from his tale a legend grows Was a cold, dark, rainy night As he walked he saw light Held his cash close to his side Just needs to catch a ride This is how the story goes
about the money and the man Davy Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Done running now, he was eight. 